Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. At the funeral of our 16th president, President Abraham Lincoln, the Reverend Matthew Simpson delivered an address to the attendees there who were there that day. In this address, he relayed some of the president's most important words. In reference to the question of God's allegiance to the nation and the things that were going on there, Lincoln said this, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. There's a temptation for all of us to think that we are in need of God to come and come and bless what we are doing. As though if, if we can get everything right and do the prepping and do the hard work and discipline and we get there, God can come and put kind of his spiritual stamp or his blessing or that divine magic that can make it all work out so well. It's almost like we think that is kind of how God works. We, we need a supernatural scale tipper to come along and help the things that we've done actually matter or something or someone to push the odds ever in our favor. Lincoln's quotation, though, gets past that man-centered philosophy and actually gets to a piece of the truth that's really important for us this morning. At the very least, he recognizes that humanity, even in all its splendor and strength and ingenuity and progress, will always bow to the one who is right. And so it's not as though we need to get God on our side. Rather, it is that we must be on God's side, who is always right. Take your Bibles and let's go to Joshua chapter 5. We are going to see three verses this morning. Verses 13, 14, and 15. We're going to look at this and hear Joshua ask a question to one who appears to be a readied warrior. Sword is drawn, ready to go. He's going to ask whose side this person is on. The answer that Joshua gets from this man will rock his world and will further explain just how a person is to be on the right side, how a person is to be on God's side. So let's look at our text, Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 through 15, and we'll pray. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his, with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Let's pray together. God, we cry out for your work in our hearts. We know that because of your great gift of the Holy Spirit, God is among us. And we understand, Lord, that we can, even with our disobedience, as Paul reminds us, to not quench the Spirit. 
we ask, God, that you would help us to learn and to obey and to have faith this morning. Would you give us repentant hearts that want to hear the word and not be hearers only, but doers of the word. So I pray now, God, that you would work to help us. Would you help me not to be exalted in pride or be distracted with the other things around, but rather that I would preach Christ to the church. I need you, God, and we need you together as your people, and we cry out for your help, knowing, God, that we cannot do any of this morning's stuff rightly without you. So I pray that you would do the work. We call on you to do the work in your church, for surely you will build it. We trust you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we dealt with uh, the pleasant topic of circumcision, and we learned through this both obedience and faith of the people, but further than that, we actually learned the faithfulness of God and his way in being able to raise up a people for himself that would be obedient and would be people that came out of that wicked and rebellious generation and God himself would raise them up. We realized that God could do this. We watched as the people fully obeyed Yahweh in having all of the males circumcised in keeping the Passover and then also in gathering the produce from the land as the manna had stopped. All the ceremonial and spiritual requirements had been met. Everything was, was completed. And they had crossed over the physical border, the, the Jordan itself. Everything was out of the way. And here they are in the land of Canaan, ready to begin the conquest. We'll pick up in verse 13. As Joshua, we find him by Jericho. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Can I just point out here, there's no shining light. There's no rumbling of thunder happening. There's no uh, like blazing fire shooting out of this warrior's eyeballs. It's pretty normal. We're not seeing anything that's overly concerning yet here. As far as Joshua knows, this is a normal person, a man of war, ready with the sword in his hand, ready for battle, standing alone, out in the open so that Joshua can see him. Remember where Joshua is. He is now past the Jordan River. He is in enemy territory. They've just crossed the Jordan. They've stopped, but not in ally country. These aren't friends. All of them would like to see Israel dead or fall back into the river and drown. They don't want them there. These are not friends. So when Joshua meets this man with a sword drawn in his hand, it's a natural question for him to ask, are you for us or you're for our adversaries? I have to know. Should I welcome you for a meeting or should I call my soldiers to pursue you and capture you and bring you back? The man answers in verse 14. Take a look. And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. He doesn't even answer Joshua's question, if you notice that. He doesn't say, for us or against us. No, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. I have come. Uh, by his response, it's clear that he is not there to follow Joshua's lead. He is there to make himself known to Joshua and to assume the position of authority for Yahweh. So it seemed as the beginning as Joshua makes this first statement, are you for us or against us? He's in the position of authority. And right around, instead of answering with, uh, yeah, I'm for you or against you, instead he says, no. I'm the one in charge here. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. 
and Joshua rightly understand what's going on. He responds appropriately. Look at the rest of the verse. He says, And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? He recognizes that he is the Lord's commander. He is the chief. He is the captain. He knows that this is what's happening and that he is being visited by some sort of, it seems like, heavenly creature sent by God to express to him what's to happen next in Israel's endeavors. The important thing that we can't miss here is that Joshua does understand what is happening. He doesn't understand who it is, but he understands that this is the Lord speaking to him somehow. This is divine communication. The Lord was sovereign over all these events and that he must submit to the Lord. And don't miss the important nuance here, though. Joshua doesn't know who this is. That's really important for us. He doesn't know, and you'll see that, but he responds, not by worshiping the warrior. Notice there's no direct object there. He is not worshiping the warrior, but by worshiping God. Now, you may think that he is worshiping the commander, but that's not what verse 14 says. Notice that the verse says that he fell on his face and worshiped, not that he worshiped him. That direct object is not there. The reason I bring this up is this is just the same construction that we find. The way this sentence is put together is the same one that we find in Job 1.20. Now you say, what does that have to do with anything? Remember when Job, still in the first chapter of Job, has someone come to him, a first servant, and he says to him, hey, all of your oxen and donkeys have been stolen by the Sabians, and all the rest of the servants are dead. The next guy comes and says, hey, the fire of God came down from heaven and destroyed all of your sheep, and every other servant is dead except for me. I made it back. And another one comes and says, the Chaldeans took all the camels, and I'm the only one that made it out. Everybody else got slain by the sword. And then finally, a servant comes and says, the house that your children are in, it came down on them. They're all dead. Think about the communication. And Job understands what's going on. That God himself is sovereign over every one of these events. And these servants who have come to told him this, he understands that this is somehow, some way from God. And how does Job respond? Let me read Job 1.20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. He worshipped a servant? No. Who did he worship? He worshipped God. The exact same construction here. These last few words are the same ones used in jo- and Joshua's response. Joshua hears the commander's answer, and he fell on the ground, and he worshipped. Same construction here. He can al- we can also tell that it's Joshua doesn't know who this is yet by kind of the way that we see him ask the next question. Look at verse 14. If, you're, if you have your ESV Bible in front of you, you're going to see in verse 14 that there's a word there that isn't capitalized that is normally capitalized. Do you see that? Joshua asks the question, what does my Lord say to his servant? Now, it'd be very easy for us to jump to conclusions and say, oh, he gets it, the Lord. This is a different word here. It certainly means Lord as someone who would be in submission to another, as someone who is giving respect to another, but this is not the divine name Yahweh. This is not this name. This is a different term that he is using. He is recognizing that he is in submission to this one, but he is just a Lord. He is not the Lord. So the ESV translators helped us here. In the book of Joshua, we've seen Yahweh speak to Joshua many times already, but this is very different. This is a different type of communication. He's actually seeing this with his own eyes. It certainly must have been 
can you imagine, jarring for Joshua. I mean, we actually kind of get when the narrator says in verse 13, he says, behold, almost as though something different is about to happen here. It's to grab our attention and almost look at this to come. Whoa, like, look, a man with a drawn sword should kind of catch our attention here. We kind of get that little clue from the narrator that something's about to happen, but for Joshua, it goes from confronting a potential enemy to all of a sudden now he's bowing in submission to hear the Lord's authoritative commander speak to him. This was God's communication to Joshua. He was ready to receive whatever it was that the Lord wanted to say. So he's prepared to hear him out. By God's strong hand, they've already accomplished the first thing that we learned back was supposed to happen in Joshua 1-2. Arise and go over the Jordan. God accomplished that. Check. But he knows there's more to the story than just crossing the Jordan. Joshua knows that the next major part is to inherit the land. Or as he says in verse 11, to take possession of it. He is ready to hear the word from Yahweh and obey because he knows those are the next steps that have to be taken. We see this when he asks, what does my Lord say to his servant? Joshua knows his place in the ranks. He understands that he is in one sense an underling of this commander. The commander's above him. He submits to him and says, what would you, my Lord, my superior, say to me? The servant, what am I supposed to do next? We see this, that he is ready to obey. He knows his place in the ranks. He's a servant receiving the words. But everything changes when we get the reply of this commander. Verse 15 says, And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. Joshua has already shifted his expectations once, right? He he, he thought this was just like he thought this was a regular guy with a sword drawn, but as he meets him, he realizes that the commander of the Lord, his army, probably some sort of very powerful angel. That's probably what he thinks this is about. So now he's settled into that new thought. He's worshiped God, he's done all the right things, and he has eagerly asked for the next steps. He wants to obey. He's ready to do that. And he asks this: what's the next thing militarily we are supposed to do? And I mean, obviously, that's what this guy's here for, right? He's the the commander of the Lord's army. Obviously, he's there, and it would make sense for him to give him his next orders as he moves into the land. But again, instead of getting the answer to his question, Joshua is given a command that reveals this visitor's agenda. It's not an answer that he is expecting at all. Instead, it tells much more about the person. This is not about having God on his side or simply getting the next orders, make sure he can implement Yahweh's strategy as they go into Canaan. That's not what this is about. By commanding Joshua to take off his sandals because the ground is holy, he is telling Joshua that he himself is divine. And the most important thing for Joshua to do is acknowledge that truth. That's what we have him telling him to do. Take off your sandals. The ground you are on is holy. He's just revealed his identity. He's shown him who he truly is. Now there's an obvious connection here, right? I think most that have been around the Bible at least a little bit know where this is coming from. Take off your shoes for you're on holy ground. Harkening right back to Exodus 3. Moses seeing the burning bush that has not been consumed. 
And the angel of the Lord speaking from that bush, telling him to remove his sandals, for he is on holy ground. In Exodus 3, 5, we notice that this is no angel. This is not just an angel of the Lord as just an angel in itself, because that voice ends up speaking, I am. I am the one. And it is God himself speaking through this bush. God commanded Moses to do the same thing, to remove his shoes because of the holiness of God. Now, the interesting thing, he's asking to remove his shoes. This is an act of submission. It is a physical act showing the superiority of another being. In this light, we see that this is a divine being and a created one. It's an act even of humility. In other places throughout the scriptures, we see that this is an act of mortification and humility before God. Joshua is face to face with the presence of the Lord of Israel in the form of a warrior with his sword drawn, calling himself the commander of the army of the Lord. And what does Joshua do? Why would we ask that question? You really have to ask? I mean, what have we seen Joshua, basic, boring, static character Joshua do over and over and over again? He obeys. That's what he does. He listens to the command and he obeys. That's exactly what we're seeing. He's not like Moses, who when he hears God tell him what to do, he's like, yeah, but my tongue is weak and like, I, I can't do that. In front of, send another person, God. I can't really do it. No, Joshua obeys. So he did it. The response here that we get in verse 15, and Joshua did so. <laughs> Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground, and he did so. Showing us that simple command and obedience structure we've already seen several times in the book of Joshua, where Yahweh makes a command and the people in Joshua respond in obedience. We saw it last week as he told them to circumcise these men, and Joshua, Joshua did exactly what he said to do. By that alone, we are seeing that this is God himself, represented in this man of war. We are seeing him not just as an angel, not just as a man, but this is the divine presence himself. The Lord himself manifesting himself to Joshua in the form of this divine commander. That truth breathes life into this passage. It's at this point that as like watchers, almost if we're watching a play, all the flashbacks happen to the first encounter here. When the reader or the listener realizes that this person is a manifestation of God himself, his jaw drops, his eyes pop out. He, he, his mind races back to the beginning of the scene and says, what have I missed already that I didn't know? This is God himself. The narrator's been setting it up the whole time. If you think about this, he said this, behold, a man is standing before him. Just like when Joshua, back in 3.11, said to the people, behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, drawing attention to the presence of God and the importance of them looking that way. It's almost like he was trying to get our attention as a narrator and say, look, look, the presence of God, behold, look at this guy. He said that also, if you remember this, he said that he had a drawn sword in his hand. He could have just said a drawn sword, but he actually puts in here drawn sword in his hand. What do we know about a hand? Go back to the end of chapter 4, verse 24, and we remember this. Wasn't one of the main purposes of the Jordan crossing so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty? And now we find this warrior with a drawn sword in his hand. Can you imagine realizing that moment that you're in 
the presence of God. You've changed from a a mere man then to what you thought was possibly an angel and now you realize the ground is holy because you are in the presence of God. He has taken on the form of a sword-drawn warrior. We have to ask then, what does this mean? It is our task to take a look here and consider this interaction. What is this supposed to mean both for Joshua and for us? I have four things I'd like you to consider here. Number one, I'd like you to consider the parallels of this story. We said it before. We can't miss the fact that this is going to bring us right back to Exodus 3. By the time we reach verse 15 of Joshua here, our minds immediately jump to Exodus 3, where Moses was in the wilderness, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame in a bush that is not consuming the bush. The text tells him, get this, that he looked and behold, a bush was burning. We see also in verse 5 that the Lord tells Moses to take off his sandals, for the place on which he is standing is holy ground. We have a parallel account. All those things are coming up in the mind of us as readers saying, oh, this has happened before. What are we to take then? It's in this place that God explains back in in chapter 3 of Exodus that he will deliver his people from the hands of the Egyptians and that he will bring them into a good and broad land, a land flowing of milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites. Where are they? They're in the place that's broad and good, flowing with milk and honey, where the Canaanites are. It is in this encounter that God reminds Moses in verse 19 that Pharaoh will not listen to him unless compelled by a mighty hand. Again, that connection is not on accident. Pharaoh will not be listening to Moses unless he's compelled by a mighty hand. Then he tells Moses that he will stretch out his hand and do wonders. Have we not seen now both things? The wonders in the crossing of the Jordan River, as he said, behold my wonders. And now as he proclaimed himself to be one who has a mighty hand to all the nations. And now we see the one who stands with a sword drawn in his hand. As readers, we are to clearly see that this is a parallel event. Joshua is meeting the Lord in the same way that Moses met the Lord. We are to be assured then that the God who flexed his strong arms to release his people from Egypt is the same God that is here as they approach the conquest, as they get ready for military engagement in this land that's flowing with milk and honey. He will then surely fulfill his purposes and his promises that he went all the way back to Moses and told him this is going to happen. He has every bit of evidence to show that God was true to his word. He did release them from Egypt. He did bring them through the land. And now they are in Canaan. All the things that he said would happen have happened. The wonders, the speech, the mighty hand. And now he comes to him in a very specific form, a sword-drawn warrior. It becomes evident to us that the Lord, who was able to do everything he said he could, most certainly give the land and all the peoples in it to Israel, despite every single roadblock that is ahead of them. And mind you, there are a lot of roadblocks ahead of them. This is not a welcoming land. Considered, despite the high walls, despite the geographical disadvantage that they have, despite the recent pain of circumcision, despite the lack of technology, despite anything, 
all of these different things, anything you can think of, the God of Moses was the God promising that he would win Israel's battle and that he was the divine warrior. That's the first thing I want you to consider. The second thing, consider the posture of the commander. What do I mean by that? How did the Lord come to Joshua? So far in the book, how do we normally see him come? Most of the time, it's reported in words like this, the Lord said to Joshua, and then he gives him some sort of speech. You don't know if it was some booming loud voice. We're not really sure how that worked out, but that's how it's reported to us. But this is not like that. This is not like that. Yahweh chose to reveal himself to Joshua in an unmistakable way. From the very first moment, the representation is crystal clear. This is a warrior with a drawn sword. It's not like, oh, there's a person out there. I don't know what he's about. He is a warrior with a drawn sword. He is here to do business. He is here in action. He is here for military engagement. He is not here to just give a message, but to be the warrior that he is. In Numbers 22, 23, and 1 Chronicles 21, 16, we see the angel of the Lord with a sword drawn, prepared for divine judgment. This instance is no different. Guess what we're about to go into? Not just because he wants to take this land. He is pouring out divine judgment on the peoples who have rebelled and who are a stench to him and his holiness. We are seeing a picture of, of the preparations for divine judgment. And it would do us good to remember this picture and what it means as we have a hard time stomaching the fact that hundreds of thousands of people will be slain. God is coming in his divine judgment to rule justly and to put to death those rebels who will not submit to him. This instance is no different. Joshua is meeting this God, the warrior God. This is the posture that he comes in. Consider the word what he says of the commander. He says, okay, well first, Yahweh, wasn't it Yahweh that said he would be with the people the whole time? Wasn't he going to be with the people? Like was he not there before and now he's here? No. He, he spoke to Joshua frequently. He is with the people and we see this probably most, probably in physical way with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire as they followed, that followed and they followed that in God's direction. His presence was there with them. But then also as we watch them cross the Jordan, remember what we talked about, the representation of God's presence was, the Ark of the Covenant? As the men's, the, the priests, as they entered into the Jordan River, and as soon as they touched, it, it, it pulled back because of the presence of God. And on the other side, when they pulled out, the presence of God left the river, and the river receded and went back to where it was before. Has God been with them? Absolutely. He's been with them the whole time. He has not been like short on his promises so why then, why the words, now I have come? He's never left them or forsaken them. It is simply that all that preliminary, important stuff, those details have all been accomplished. And now a certain thing has come. God the divine warrior prepared with his agenda to now take all of Canaan has come. The next task is to fight. Last thing, consider the end of this episode, or I'd like to say, what end? <laughs> if you look at verse 15, this is perhaps one of my favorite features of this passage. How does this little episode end? 
what happened in this interaction? I mean, what's the meat of the conversation that they're going to get into here? I mean, I'd love to have the minutes of this meeting, but we've got nothing. I mean, the first thing in command, he tells them, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. He did so. Cut. End scene. Like, what happened? Now we're in chapter 6 all of a sudden. We're just getting into it. What do you have to say? You're, you're God. Say something to us. They begin the conversing. God tells them, take off the shoes. Done. Why in the world? What happened here? Did we lose part of the scrolls? <laughs> you know, someone dropped these conversations along the way. Like, oh, I wish we know what he said. We don't really know, so we'll have to leave it out. Are we missing that? Did someone maybe like slip and hit the backspace button in your Bible and now you like miss six verses here? Is that what's going on? I mean, if we're paralleling it with Moses' interaction with God at the burning bush, we are grossly missing a huge chunk because what we have here is a few verses. Three. When we look at Exodus 3, God's discussion with him starts in Exodus 3, 4 and goes all the way to 4, 17. I mean, it's a huge conversation about all that he is going to do back and forth. What are we to make then of this non-conversation? Very simple introductions and understanding who this person is. End scene. I think this is all on purpose. Don't worry. We didn't lose any scrolls. No one hit backspace. We didn't lose anything. This is on purpose for us. This is exactly what we were supposed to get. The narrator leaves us in the presence of the divine warrior. Almost as though there's an ellipsis and we don't know where it ends. But he's still in our presence. He's still there. The narrator leaves us in the presence of the divine warrior. There's no perceptible end to this encounter. Like we don't see anything. What happens? There's no end for us because we know that he, he must then have gone away. No, we have no idea. He doesn't say that. It's almost as though he is still with Israel now as they move into the conquest. The divine warrior who will never leave them or forsake them, is now with them. He is with his people as they move forward with the military conquest ahead of them. From the beginning of the book, Yahweh has proclaimed himself as the key to the nation's success. It was he who said that I will never leave you or forsake you. It was God who said to follow the ark, the presence of God, into the Jordan. And now as they move into the battle, he is with them probably closer and more living than have ever seen before, this man who declares himself to be the commander of the Lord's army, the one that makes the ground around him holy, is with them. The story almost seems to lack some sort of necessary conclusion or resolution, but it should not bother us. Don't let it bother you. This is a good thing that's meant to sit just like that. Instead, we should be confident that the divine warrior has come to do his work and in no clear way we have seen him leave at all. He seems to be still here with his people, Israel on his side. And so we come to the end of this little episode, this incredibly powerful but short episode with God being manifested as divine warrior and Joshua. What are we then to make of this meeting? What should we do with this divine warrior? Does this have any bearing on our life whatsoever? I'm not Joshua, so what does it mean for me as I read this passage? What does it mean for us as Cornerstone? I'd like to draw your attention. First, I'll say this. We already said it a couple times. But first of all, it will not be Israel who alone conquers the, the new land. 
It will be God, the divine warrior, who says, no, you are on my side or you are by yourself. That's the first thing. The second thing is I want to direct your attention to Joshua's response in verse 14. He says, what does my Lord say to his servant? Joshua is asking the commander for his next set of commands to carry out. He's asking what the next steps are. He, he wants to know. He's an obedient Christian man trying to do what God has told him to do. He wants to know what's the next thing. But the commander makes it very clear. That's not really what you need, Joshua. Although the next set of commands may be what you want, you want the, 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 the how-tos and the steps and what you're supposed to do next, Although you have all that and you want that, the greatest, with Christian intentions in, in, involved here, you're not asking the right question. In fact, you ought not to be asking a question at all. As God replies, he says, take off your sandals because I am God. That's what we are to take here. That we see, when he says take off your sandals, he's saying, don't you know that I am God? God is not your lucky rabbit's foot or your magic prayer genie that helps you go through the thick and thin of life and he's, I'm just glad I have my faith and that he kind of tips the scales for me or he's really there when I need him. Uh, most of the life I do myself, but I just, he's there when I need him. He's not the God that you just want like Wavy News 10, he's on your side. This is not who we're talking about. If you can do anything of value with your life, friends, it's to know and worship and love this God. Not to have him come stamp your good deeds. He doesn't give him things to do. <laughs> he doesn't give him the next right steps. Those are all great things. But if we miss the primary call of God to worship him, then we've missed the boat completely. The greatest thing that you can do, and I'm talking to you now, the greatest thing that you and I can do with your life is to worship him alone for who he is. The Lord says it in no uncertain terms in Deuteronomy. We know this passage. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. Every bit of you ought to love him. If I was to watch maybe a reality TV show of your life, 24-hour access that gave me uh, views of what you think, how you treat people, how you do your work, why you do your work, what decisions you make with your money, what you eat, how you treat your children, how you treat your wife, what you think about in all your dark or wonderful thoughts. I'll ask you, would it be evident to the one watching this television show that you were dominated by one thing? Not that you were perfect, not that you got everything specifically right, but you were dominated by a love for one. And the rest of your life was shaped by that one desire, by that one love, to know God, to love him above all other things. Would those episodes point that you love him more than stuff, more than money, more than sex, more than power, more than renown, more than productivity, more than organization, more than control? Would your life show that you love those things more? This is a serious event and I will raise my hand first to tell you, this strikes me, that I would be in God's presence and say, what do I really love? What is really coming out of my heart? What do I most desire? 
Would an observer be able to say of my own heart, my own life, that the one overriding theme of my life is that I love the Lord? That I love Jesus Christ more than anything else? Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you today, together, I have failed. Why do you think Joshua had to be told to worship? He as well has failed. He is not perfect. And we are called to worship at the core, at the core of your very being. What do you want more than anything else? What desire actually reigns in your heart? I'd be embarrassed to have this TV show be about my life. First of all, it'd be a crappy show. But second of all, it would reveal probably the warring problem in my heart over and over and over again with the things of this world and with Christ, the ultimate treasure. I call you today to remember the divine warrior reminds us that he is here to fight his battles and that our primary command is to worship him. Out of that, we will get many other good steps to take. None of those matter if we don't get this, though. I've said it before. If you don't get Jesus, you don't get anything. But if you get Jesus, you get everything. This is who he is. He will bring success and prosperity to all walks of life, from the fight against the powers of darkness in this present age to raising every one of his believers to new life in his son Jesus. This message is not primarily about God fighting your battles. He is the divine warrior, but today we are to go back to the first things first sermon we preached long ago. In time, priority, desire, God must have preeminence. He made you. You are in his image. He has every right to you. And don't you know that he is so good that he would give himself to us? As your brother and friend, may I just call you to love this Savior. And all the competing loves in your life, I get it. I struggle with them too. May we put sin to death, though, by the Spirit's power and love him more. May we ask him to increase our love for God. May we worship him in spirit and in truth. This is not about doing more religious duties. It's not moving our stuff around to do it a certain way and make sure we have a couple rituals in the morning. It's about our whole life being dominated by worship to Jesus, by loving him more than all the other stuff. This is about being conquered by Christ. This is why Paul writes in Colossians, get this, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. No one else is allowed to have that position. And you will either recognize that and trust him and obey him and find peace in him or you will be destroyed. You will be judged. Friend, Maybe you do not know Christ. Can I call you today to repent and believe the gospel that Jesus Christ has given his life for you? He has called you to himself. He is, this is a legitimate offer that you would respond in faith and trust him and him alone, not yourself. Brothers and sisters, let us continually go back and worship this God, the divine warrior, the one who has saved our souls, and the one who... <laughs> who holds nothing back but gives all to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
Lord, may you be true to your word. And may you work in us that we would be able to sing, yet not I, but Christ in me. Joshua, it's proclaimed to him that it's the divine warrior who will do this work, not Joshua. I pray that the life that we now live then in the flesh, this life right here, that we would do so by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Praise your holy name, Jesus. You are a great redeemer and king. It's in your name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.